At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. We're used to hearing advice from older and wiser people about the unexpected twists and turns their lives have taken. But what if the unexpected turn comes in your early 20s and you get derailed by a rare and frightening illness that chances are one in three that you'll ever recover? How would you handle that? Well, today's guest is Emmy Award-winning writer Suleika Jawad. Not only did she survive cancer and beat those devastating odds, she shared her journey with millions in a popular New York Times column called Life Interrupted. She's since gone on a 15,000-mile journey to meet others who have also faced incredible obstacles. We'll talk about what she learned along the way. We're also joined by her partner, whose name and music may ring a bell for a lot of you, John Batiste. He's the music director of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and he's recently won the Academy Award for Best Original Score for his work on the beautiful Pixar hit, Soul. And the two of them together, well, not only are they one of the coolest couples around, but their empathy for each other is really incredible. I hope their story inspires you as much as it inspires me. I'm Hoda Kotb, and welcome to my podcast, Making Space. First of all, Suleika, I'm crazy about your name. I can't. I've been <laughs> saying it. I've been walking around saying, Suleika, Suleika. What does that mean? Oh, well, you may know this. It's Zuleika in Arabic, which means the heart robber. In the the heart robber. <laughs> <laughs> what, did, what were you like as a kid when you found out what your name actually meant? I think my dad modified it. He told me it uh, meant uh, desert princess, oh. which I'll take as well. Yeah, you'll take yeah, that yeah, too. Yeah. When you were little, I love your dad's Tunisian, your mom's Swiss, and you're kind of a mixed bag of all of that rolled into one beautiful package. But when you were a little girl, what did you, like, what was your dream, your your mm. dream as a kid? You know, I, I, I call kids who grew up as first-generation Americans or with immigrant parents the spackle because you do end up having to become a sort of translator between the world and the language and the food that you consume at home and everything that's happening outside of the home. But I, from the time I was very little, was one of those kids who was brimming with creativity. I danced, I played the upright bass, uh, but more than anything, I really loved writing. Describe, close your eyes for a second, and imagine your childhood bedroom. What's on the walls? What kind of sheets you had? Did you share? Tell me what you see. So... Um, my parents were were strict in in certain ways, but when it came to creativity, we had no rules. Uh, So I painted my own bedroom very poorly, but I painted it myself. I had um, lots and lots of books. Did you have any posters on the wall? I had a poster of an 
old Tunisian singer named Ali Riahi. <laughs> Is that right? Did you like Ali Riahi? <laughs> At Ali Riahi, I had uh, Backstreet Boys posters and Spice Girls posters. That was my <sighs> Let me tell you, if anything, <laughs> if anything describes the immigrant experience, it's it is, is your wall <laughs> when you were a little kid. That is so cool. <laughs> so were you super smart in school? I, you know, English is my second language. I, on the first day of school, didn't speak a word of English. Wow. So school was an interesting experience for me and a challenging experience, especially because my family moved around a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't until high school that I realized um, not only that I was smart, mm. but that the smart path would be for me to focus on my mm-hmm. studies. Um, and so I had a kind of pretty significant shift in the ninth grade. So you wound up at Princeton, and did you, I, I know you were looking at the path of a war correspondent. Why that path? Mm. So right around the time that I graduated, a revolution broke out in Tunisia, which is where my dad's from and where a lot of my family still lives. Uh, that was later called the Arab Spring. Mm-hmm. Um, and up in that, until that point, I'd been writing um, and I saw for the first time a path toward a vocation Mm. that uh, made sense to me. I spoke Arabic, I spoke French, and I applied for a job as a stringer in Tunisia for the International Herald Tribune. But before I was able to pursue that, my life changed very dramatically. So you're going about your business and you get a feeling of a little itchiness, which I think your average Joe would think, oh, well, I don't know what that is, eczema, give me some cream. Mm -hmm. But that was not the case at all. What happened? So at the time I was living in Paris, I was just a couple months out of college and I was working as a paralegal and pursuing this other, you know, stringer position on the side. And I hadn't been feeling well for a while. It started with an itch and the itch blossomed into all kinds of mysterious symptoms. I was getting colds all the time um, and coming down with bouts of bronchitis. Uh, But the biggest symptom I had was fatigue. Mm. Um, But of course, at 22, everyone is tired. Um, Everyone that I was hanging out with was working hard and going out at night dancing. And uh, so I didn't really make much of it. Uh, And I went to see a number of doctors, all of whom, you know, treated that specific symptom or ailment and sent me home. And toward the end of my time in Paris, I started to get the feeling that my doctors that I was seeing weren't taking me seriously. Mm -hmm. But I think the truth is, I wasn't entirely taking myself seriously. Youth Mm -hmm. and health are supposed to go Mm -hmm. hand in hand. Um, And it was only when I got to a point where I was so weak, it was a struggle to walk up and down the stairs that I found myself in an emergency room. And within 24 hours, I was on a plane back home to upstate New York. um, And I got the bone marrow biopsy that led to my actual diagnosis. To hear the words that you were diagnosed with a specific type of leukemia at 22 is scary enough, but when they said the chances of survival were one in three, I mean, my God, like what does a, what goes through a 22-year-old's head? I think there was this immediate sense of fracture. There was my life before yeah. 
and everything that came after. And, you know, I never returned to Paris, to my apartment, to my job. Uh, friends packed up my things and, and mm. sent them to my house. Um, and I had this sense, even though I couldn't quite wrap my head around what it meant to have a cancer diagnosis at 22, that the person I'd been before was buried. There was mm. no returning Mm. to that pre-diagnosis self. The cancer fight, and I don't know how you, you describe it, but it usually there's a beginning and an end point for it. Mm. I mean, I had breast cancer. I think for six or eight months, I went through stuff. Yeah. Your timing, the, the three and a half, was it three and a half, four years of going through chemo and bone marrow and chemo again, and this this is like... How did you see light and how did you survive all those days? So initially I thought, um, and and maybe more so I hoped that it was just going to be a short yeah. trip in the kingdom of the sick. And I was intent on not getting too comfortable on not letting it kind of take over my identity. Um, and within that, the end of that first summer in the hospital, I learned that none of the standard chemotherapy treatments were working for me. Um, and what, you know, I'd hoped would be a short sojourn was very clearly going to become something much longer. And I think one of the most challenging parts of that experience was the sense of the goalposts moving. Mm -hmm. I didn't know, you know, on day one that I was going to be in treatment for three and a half years. Um, and they say you can survive anything as long as you can see the end date yeah. in sight. And there came a point in my treatment where I couldn't see that end in sight. And that was the most challenging, I think, to know how to kind of anchor yourself when you're swimming in a sea of uncertainty. I mean, there are life lessons that come in your worst times. I mean, some change we, we choose in our life and some is cast upon us and you have to figure it out. And I remember so clearly how the world got clear. Like, it, I was never clear. I think I was kind of always mushy about things. Mm -hmm. Those are my friends. I don't love that one so much, but so what? They're nice. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. And then all of a sudden, you realize, like, my life has a beginning and an end, and I'm not wasting time. Like, that time is over. Yeah. Did you have that sensation? Yeah. I think, like, you know, a lot of people in their early 20s, I had this feeling of time. Yes. I had time to figure out who I was, time to figure out what I wanted to do. And that diagnosis brought into immediate, urgent focus the fact that we're all here for a finite mm -hmm. period of time. Um, and I felt a strange sense of urgency around time. Mm -hmm. um, and I had the same experience. It felt like all the artifice just kind of fell away. Yeah. Um, I got clear not only about who my friends were, but maybe more importantly, who I wanted to be friends with and what mm. kind of relationships I wanted to cultivate. Um, and I had such limited energy that I was well enough to maybe do three things every day, small mm. things like write an email, watch a movie, see a friend. And what that meant for me was that I had to get very clear about my priorities. Wow. And it's something I still think about now just as a kind of thought exercise 
And mm-hmm. I ask myself, you know, if I have three things I can do today, what feels most mm-hmm. important, most meaningful? Um, and I think that's one of the, the silver linings. And I don't use that word lightly because obviously there's so much about illness that mm-hmm. does not feel like a silver lining. Um, but that reshuffling of priorities and the kind of clarifying power mm-hmm. of having your mortality hang in the balance. That is so true. And it, there's something so strange about how free you feel suddenly. You didn't even realize you were carrying all that heavy junk around. Yeah. It's like, I didn't even, you know, you don't even realize it. It's like my shoulders feel lighter, even though you're in the middle of it. So to have a doctor say to you after a bone marrow transplant and chemo again, I don't know if you used the term cancer-free or mm-hmm. you are in remission, but to hear those words, um, what did what did that moment feel like? Mm. I mean, I had been hoping to hear those words for almost three and a half years. Um, the goal had always been to survive. And I'd spent, you know, 1,400 days working tirelessly toward that goal. And I thought when I got to that place, I would want to celebrate. Yeah. Um, but it didn't feel anything like what I'd imagined. I was physically, you know, wrecked from going through those treatments. I was grieving my loss of identity, my sense of self. I was grieving my fellow, you know, cancer buddies that I'd made. My best friend, Melissa, Mm. had died earlier that month. Mm. And I was grieving a relationship that hadn't survived the stresses of illness. And so I felt this weird dissonance between what should be and what was. I wanted to feel grateful. I wanted to quickly and organically fold back into the rhythms of living. But instead, I found myself in this kind of limbo, this kind of in-between place where on paper, I was better. Mm -hmm. But off paper, I couldn't have felt further from being the healthy, happy, you know, 27-year-old that I'd hoped to be on the other side of all this. Especially because when you spend almost, well, three and a half years in one space, the, it's the same thing, the idea that, okay, now this is over and all your friends or some of your friends and colleagues are saying, oh, great, so now we can go back to the way it was. Let's go out to the bar. Let's go have some fun. Exactly. You weren't feeling those things. Yeah, I wanted to be you feeling wanted to, those yeah. things. Um, but, you know, I think often when we talk about things like cancer, the kind of final act yeah. or the end of the story is comes with a cure, uh, but we mm-hmm. don't talk a lot about what happens after. Mm-hmm. And it took me a, a while to even acknowledge to myself how much I was struggling. There were so many unanswered questions that I didn't know what to do with. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, how do I find a job when I need to nap for four hours mm-hmm. in the day or my immune system is still sending me to the emergency room on a regular basis? How do I date uh, when I have a quarter inch of hair and a port still in my chest, how do I talk about, you know, the side effects of chemo, like infertility or early menopause? Like all of it felt so overwhelming. And in a weird way, I found myself almost wishing that I was still sick, not because I wanted to have leukemia, of course, but I understood the hospital ecosystem. Right. That was the world right. I lived in for four years I felt comfortable there. I looked like the other patients. It was the outside world Mm -hmm. that felt scary and foreign and daunting to me. 
When we come back, Suleika on life after a deadly diagnosis and how feeling lost inspired her to take a trip of a lifetime. And her partner, musician John Batiste, joins the conversation. Every parent is a busy parent. There's enough on your plate without piling on your kids' homework. And considering how much teaching methods have changed, most of us are a little rusty anyway. Consider IXL, an excellent resource for homework that can make a huge impact on your child's ability to learn. Backed by research, kids using IXL are actually scoring higher on their tests. Our techniques help them master topics in a fun way, complete with positive feedback. We're seeing improvements all across the country as IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S., And IXL is also very affordable. One month of IXL costs less than the typical hour of tutoring. On just one website, IXL covers all the kids in your home from pre-K to 12th grade. Sign up today to get 20% off your membership at IXL.com slash H-O-D-A. That's IXL.com slash H-O-D-A. So I love your New York Times column. I thought it was so beautiful and riveting and moving. But what I loved so much more was when people reached out to you because they wanted, because they they connected with you. You had this way that whether you were sick before or you weren't, or you knew, somehow people felt you, like they, you reached across and you grabbed them by the heart. And people wrote you letters. And you know, in, in this industry, sometimes you get a letter and you got beautiful letters and you read them, but then you did something totally amazing. Like I have not, <laughs> I have not heard of someone doing this, but what did you do with those letters that you got? So, you know, in that year after I finished treatment, I was in the most lost place yeah. I've ever been. I knew I wasn't a cancer patient anymore. I knew I couldn't return to the person I'd been pre-diagnosis, but I had no idea who I was. And so I started thinking about these different rites of passages that we have in our culture, these kind of ritualized ceremonies that help us move through transitions like baby showers and Mm -hmm. weddings and funerals. And I realized that there wasn't a kind of ritual or rite of passage when you emerge from a long illness. Mm -hmm. And I needed that. I needed time to reckon with what I'd been through and to reflect on who I wanted to become. I needed the space away from uh, my home and my kind of cancer identity um, to really kind of come into my own. And so I hatched this kind of boondoggle of a plan and I decided to learn how to drive. You hadn't, you didn't have your license. I did not have my license. Mm -hmm. Um, I rented out my apartment and I borrowed a friend's car and I ended up embarking on a 15,000-mile road trip uh, across the country to meet some of the strangers who'd written me letters about their own major life interruptions Mm. and their own stories of transition. And they really, you know, those individuals, there were about 22 of them that I visited, became my sort of breadcrumb trail through the wilderness of survivorship. Mm. By the way, I've just, I was just imagining, like, pretend I wrote you a letter 
And all of a sudden, I'm sitting out doing yard work, edging my lawn, and you roll up in your car with your dog. <laughs> hey, I'd be like totally freaked out. So what was it like when, when you actually went up and met these people? They probably, I mean, they didn't even know if you got the letter. Letters yeah. are like you, you send it off and it goes into a black hole, but yet there you stood on their driveway. It was extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, after being sick for so long, my relationship to fear changed dramatically. Yeah. I was always prepared for the other shoe to drop, ah. prepared for something to go wrong. And what I found instead in these encounters and on that road trip was that the world really welcomed me at mm. every turn. Um, I ended up, you know, staying on someone's fold-out couch. You know, I stayed with a, on a ranch in Wyoming with a family of survivalist ranchers. I visited a high school teacher in California who was grieving the death of her son. I went mm. to uh, a maximum security prison in Texas to visit a death row convict. And each of those conversations um, helped me gain a sense of perspective mm. on my own predicament. But more than that, I think... It showed me a way to reimagine community and it gave me this sense of connection that at a time in my life when I felt so lost and so isolated really helped me see a path forward. So you, because sometimes when you are going through a difficult time and you meet someone who is also going through a difficult time, sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's a little burdensome. You're like, I don't know how much I can take of this pain. I'm, I feel like I'm carrying mm. mine, but it didn't seem like it worked that way for you. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, my experience has been that when we dare to share our most vulnerable moments and stories, there's a kind of reverberation that happens and a call and response. Um, and vulnerability begets vulnerability mm -hmm. begets vulnerability. Um, and to be able to kind of tell and talk about the unvarnished truth of what it means to have your life upended, whether by, you know, a cancer diagnosis or some other kind of heartbreak or loss that brings you to the floor. And to be able to um, talk about that mm -hmm. with people who had experienced mm -hmm. some version of that um, felt like such a gift. Yeah, I call them my, my road guardians, oh, those people. That. And I looked up all your stuff. You're just amazing. You're amazing. No, really. You do, like, the most amazing and stuff. Your vlogs are amazing. And then it's funny how this is happening, and now you're here. You're here. It's crazy. And where are we? We're in Seabrook. Little Florida. Little Seabrook, Florida. The little girl, Unique, was that her name? Another girl yeah. who you saw? What was her issue? Do you remember so Unique was, I believe, about 13 years old when she first wrote to me. And uh, she had been diagnosed with cancer. Oh, okay. And uh, because her family lived far away from her treatment center, was in a hospital room alone for many, many months. And when I went on my road trip, she was just finishing treatment. And so I knew immediately that I was going to drive to Florida and go see her. And I'll never you know, f forget picking her up that day for, for lunch. I, I knocked on the door and I just heard screams on the other side. And this tiny little adorable pint-sized girl just busted out the door full of energy and full of excitement. 
And I remember asking her, like, you're about to rejoin the greater gathering. What do you want to do now that you're, you've been given this clean bill of health? And she was, I think, 16, 17 at the time. And she said, I want to go camping and I want to come visit you in New York. And I want to try weird foods like octopus that I've never tasted before. And on and on and on. And, you know, what struck me so much about her and her joy and her excitement is that sometimes when you've been through a big trauma, especially a life-threatening diagnosis, is that daydreaming about the future can feel like a scary exercise because you don't know if you're going to exist there. Um, But I think what she embodies so beautifully is that that kind of daydreaming uh, and hope can feel dangerous, but it's so much more daring and such a, you know, a richer, more beautiful way to live your life. Oh my God, I'm getting chills thinking about that. Oh my word. Are you happy? I'm so happy. <laughs> what, what makes you happy now? Um, I, you know, the strange thing in the last year of this pandemic is I found myself uh, living a, a version of the life that I had when I was sick, which mm. is to say that my circle is much smaller. smaller right. My life is quieter. And I don't know about you, but I have spent so much of the last decade striving and working and hustling. And I feel so privileged to get to do work that I love. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also been thinking about the way that that working at that pace can be its own kind mm-hmm. of trauma response. Mm-hmm. So this year for me, my goal has been leisure, uh, which isn't to say I'm not working all the or time. Yeah. But, you know, these small moments that I've gotten to have in the last year of, of being at home with our dogs, of gardening, of hanging out with my partner, John. You no, know, it's so interesting because I, I sometimes think like life is full of exclamation points. It's like the good ones. You graduated from college, you meet a great guy, you have a baby, you get married. And then on the flip side, it's you get a sad diagnosis, somebody passes away, et cetera. But most of the days are just Wednesday in the middle. Nothing terrific and nothing horrible, just Wednesday. Something I've been thinking about recently is trying to approach my Wednesday as ritual, Hmm. washing the dishes as ritual, Mm -hmm. gardening as ritual, and really trying to kind of slow down and and savor that um, because it's so easy to move from one exclamation point to the next. Um, But I'm sure as you know, you know, when you get a scary diagnosis, you're not thinking about the things that are on your resume. Mm -hmm. You're thinking about the people you love Mm -hmm. and wanting to spend time with them. You're thinking about the things that nourish you. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, all the rest doesn't matter as much and it falls away. Um, You know, we live in a country that has this culture uh, or this anxiety of around accomplishment. Um, And in this season in my life, I'm trying very hard um, to resist that and, and to kind of center myself back and, and those things that I love, the same things that I loved as a little girl, mm. uh, the dancing and music and, and writing and, and family. 
Speaking of music, so you play the stand-up bass? Is that I play the stand-up bass. Girl, you rock, <laughs> man. That is so cool. You always loved that when you were when you were younger? You know, I started on piano when yeah. I was five and I hated it. And yeah. my mom was very strict and made me practice every day. And when I was eight, I got the option of picking a second instrument. And I picked the instrument that I thought would inconvenience my parents the most. You were so bad. I know. I was so <laughs> bad. And that was the bass. And uh-huh. I immediately fell in love with it. It's, you know, one of, it's one of the only instruments that's so big that you have to actually hug it to play it. Yeah. And you feel every note in your chest. Um, and I immediately fell in love with it. Uh, and music has always been a big part of your life. Music has always been a big part of my life. Which explains your very handsome and awesome boyfriend. <laughs> if you don't know John Baptiste, and we're going to bring him in here in just a second, but he's a cool cat. Boy, is he something special. He is. I mean, and you met him when you were 13 at band camp. I did. I, I mean, that's so, that's like, Talk about a full circle life right here. Yeah, back when yeah. we were in braces and, and ill-fitting clothes. And <laughs> supremely awkward. We'll fact check this with John. <laughs> when we come right back, Suleika's partner joins us. Did we mention he's also pretty big time? Academy Award winning musician John Baptiste of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I'm sitting smack dab in the middle of a love story. Um, Okay, so you're 13 years old. You're both geeks. I know you are at 13 because nobody was not a geek at 13. Oh, yeah, fully. Uh, So are you guys close to the same age? Yeah, we're about a year and a half apart. A year and a half apart. Mm -hmm. So, uh, John, do you remember uh, your girl from band camp at age 13? (laughs) So here's what I remember. Uh Uh-huh. I remember... Birkenstocks. This is not an You had Birkenstocks on? Before they were cool. Yeah. <laughs> she was ahead. Suleika was ahead. Now, and I also must say, I am, am honored to talk to you because when I was growing up at that time, I was watching you on WWL. Come on. Oh. Come on. <laughs> so when I was growing up in New Orleans, Kenner, Louisiana, uh-huh. you'd be on TV. My first time leaving was to go to this band camp. First time leaving <laughs> home. And being somewhere for the summer, you go somewhere for the summer for the first time. It's like a new world. Yeah. Where you, was band camp? Where were you? Saratoga Springs. Oh, so you took a big trip. This yeah. was not a nothing. All oh, right. Upstate New York. So you were already, <laughs> what instrument were you playing, John, at the time? Piano. And I saw her in the courtyard 
and this is, you know, again, I thought this was maybe a New York thing. People wear Birkenstock. <laughs> Nobody was wearing that in New Orleans. <laughs> no, they weren't. Those were not cool in New Orleans. And I thought it, it would, what immediately came to my mind was, oh, she's like a, a hippie. <laughs> you know, like granola. Like <laughs> that vibe. granola. <laughs> Uh, and how did you at 13, were you, at, did you have any confidence level at 13 or were you like a lot of 13 year old girls? You did? She did. Definitely. I was what? a 13 year old Definitely. going on 20. I thought I was far more mature than I actually was. That's impressive. <laughs> Most 13 year old girls feel so incredibly awkward. I was just coming out of what I call UDS, ugly duckling syndrome. <laughs> I just got in contacts for the first oh, time to replace my uh-huh. eyeballs Definitely. with glasses. Okay. So now at 13, that's when the crushes start happening. Did, was there a crush or were, were you all just friends? No, no, no crush. Yeah. I would, I was very much a uh, late bloomer. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I was into music and video games uh-huh. and martial arts and chess things like Eclectic. that. Eclectic. You got a nice array. Uh, all the just, nerdy activity. Yeah. I was about to say all the introspective kind okay. of uh, introvert activities. Yeah. So, you see. So like when you saw him, was did you just thought a, a, a nice kid, nice guy? I remember thinking he was a little strange because I, I think I tried to initiate a conversation and conversation was not happening. You were not into it? You just weren't a conversationalist then? I think there's a glorious awkwardness <laughs> in uh, coming into your own at that age. Yeah, and it's I think weird. I, it's it's strange, but a beautiful strange. And I feel like I've kept that until adulthood. <laughs> but you know, I still, you know, I feel like we probably tried to speak, and at that time, anybody who I talked to, yeah, and she's always been a great communicator, yeah. always magnetic, always yeah. able to communicate. She's got it. The emotions that other people are feeling, I, I noticed that about her immediately. Yeah. Um, but there was no crush. We 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 linked later in college, and that's when we started to really become more friends. Okay. So did y'all y'all went to school together, Suleika? I John was a freshman at Juilliard, and I was in the pre college program. But what I will say about John, <laughs> Wait, that what first was she, summer, don't what, bury the lead. What what's the lead? She's so talented. There you go. You gotta understand. She was at Juilliard pre-college playing the double bass. Now, musicians know the double bass is is, is not a joke. Yeah. That instrument is it's and you tough. were playing the double bass back in at, at the camp. And 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 this instrument was bigger than her. Uh-huh. You know, you <laughs> playing the double bass with the bowl, the intonation that the, to get it in tune. And, and the command that instrument is really tremendous. So Ju- you're at Juilliard. You're in the pre-college. He's at Juilliard. He's the he, so you got two musical geniuses going on. And so there, even then, we, we didn't have any no little spark, no chemistry. You know what's weird? Mm-hmm. I on my first my first week at Juilliard, I was on the one train with my friend Michelle, and I had no you know I hadn't thought about John since band camp several years earlier, which when you're a teenager feels like yeah. a decade. And I see this young man on the train who is singing to himself and playing the air piano. And people were kind of staring because even in New York, that's not a sight that you see every day. And I looked at him and I turned to my friend and I said, that's John Batiste. What is he doing here? And I said, that's the man I'm going to marry someday. Wait, And I just blurted it out and forgot about it. it. I want to stop for a second. (laughs) 
on the one train you knew you were going to marry John? It, it was like one of those things you just say, and I didn't think about it, and I didn't give it much weight. So is that the last you see of her before you know she's not feeling well? No. Mm-hmm. We we saw each other. This is in college, my yeah. first year, her last year of high school. Then she doesn't end up going to Jula. Right. She goes to Princeton. Then right. At Princeton, she has this... Um, incredible time. We don't see each other. In passing, we see each other at performances here and there. Right. We have mutual friends, but we're not really as connected. connected. Yeah. Then she has a going away party because she's moving. You move into Paris. And I went to the going away party with a mutual friend of ours. Mm-hmm. And uh, Michelle Ross took me to the party. And we, we're friends at this point, but not really close yeah. friends in that way. Um, but then that was when there was a, a spark at that party, the oh. going away party. But oh, she was going away. Going to Paris. So bye. That it was not, you know, oh, the time. You were pining, John, ah! a little, a little. You're pining. We, we a little. had a, a, a moment. Uh-huh. We had a moment. Well, you got to have a moment. I mean, come on, going to Paris, y'all. There's love in the air. Yes. Okay, so let's fast forward to how did you learn that Suleika was was ill, was not well? So that same friend Michelle told me one day we. Um, were playing, you know, my band, we would play in public places often, mm-hmm. you know, for, not for money, just to bring mm-hmm. the music, revelry, mm-hmm. joy. Uh, we were playing in the subway one mm-hmm. day and um, mm-hmm. she told me, and I gathered the rest of my band, because at this time it was just a few of us, mm-hmm. and I gathered the rest of them and we went to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, I hadn't heard that she was that ill until that moment. Mm-hmm. It was a It was a real moment of clarity that I had to do something and what mm. I do is music I just felt I needed to bring that to the situation to help in any way that I could so that's what I did but that must have been emotional because you didn't expect to, to see her in that way I, I, I guess there's an impact that a person has on you that you don't know the full extent of until you're in a moment mm-hmm. of crisis so it felt like I needed to do something in that moment even though we weren't super close friends, it felt like, oh, I really connect with this person. I respect this person, what she's all about, what I know of her. This is this is important. So that's why we went to the, the hospital and we played and it was a beautiful experience. I'd love for everybody to hear a little bit of that. Did you feel like you were doing some good? Yes, I, I felt like we were doing good, but that's that was a, a special thing for our relationship, a special time to, to, you know, you see each other through these different phases and you see what a person is like when they're 13, 14. Then you see what a person mm-hmm. is like at the beginning of college. Then you see what a person is like when they finish college and going out into the world. Then you see what a person is like when they're going through tremendous duress, uh, the impact of that on their life, meeting mm-hmm. the family, understanding, you know, how that impacts the whole community. Yeah. It was important. So, like, what, what was it like to watch him well, light so up the room? What John didn't know was that the day before, I'd learned that the chemotherapy I'd been doing wasn't working. Mm-hmm. I'd entered the hospital with 30% leukemic blasts 
And by the end of this really harrowing treatment, I had 70%. Oh, geez. And so at that point, my only option was an experimental clinical trial. Mm. And my family, I mean, I remember not even being able to look my parents in the eyes mm. because I knew that if I saw how devastated they looked, I just wouldn't be able to hold it together. Mm. And John showed up <laughs> in the middle of that with his entire band and put on this impromptu concert. And the extraordinary thing about music is that especially maybe when you're in a low down place, it has this kind of musical antidepressant effect. And it wasn't just for me and my family, it was the whole cancer ward. And patients and nurses and doctors started to trickle out into the hallways and people began to dance and (laughs) sing and clap their hands. It's true. (laughs) But it's also a testament to John because John is someone who, who shows up in the difficult moments and who keeps on showing up, not just for me, but for everybody. Mm. Um, and he's always been that way. <laughs> well, I, you, you, you got to show them. <laughs> you got to show people you love them. Mm-hmm. I, I urge everybody out there, you show the person in your life who you haven't told or you haven't shown your love, show them. How, how do you show Suleika that you love her? I, I find that every day is a new... It's it's not a challenge necessarily, but it's it's um it's a call. You know, there's a call to maybe it's it's doing a dish, or maybe it's going to the hospital, um, maybe you know it, it it it's thinking of something that she would want or needs that she's not thinking of because we're so so cre- creative people are so tied up into the ideas that. You need someone to think of the basics for you sometimes. Mm-hmm. That's a way of showing that's love. A, yeah, that's a good that's a good point. You get caught up and you're like, hey, have you had a meal today? Did you miss X? Yeah, you fill in that blank. You should have uh, been at our house last week when I wake up at 4 a.m. to fire alarms everywhere because John was cooking <laughs> and had decided to learn how to make fried chicken. But that's been his way of, I think, one of your new love languages in the last year has been through food. You're yeah. always making sure that there's dinner, that there's something that oh. nourishes the two of us or bringing me... In a house, you gotta have smells, have aromas, got, how about and a, fire alarms. Any crawfish boil yet or not yet? Ooh. Come on now, John. Get the crawfish <laughs> boil going. Don't even think that you have not done that yet. Come on now. Come on. <laughs> I, when y'all go to New Orleans, I'm going with you. Okay, yeah, I want to go. I want to go. I'll show you how to do the crawfish. I, yeah. I got those down. So what's uh, what's the future with you two? Well, it's a beautiful thing to have family. We uh, we look forward to something in that realm. You know, there's complications. Yeah. Um. You know, I don't. I, I don't. I don't feel like that is ever a barrier to no. family because you can. You can plenty figure of ways out. to make a family, right? Yeah, I, I think it's possible. It's, it's all about love. Well, and I'll just say, like, I think one of my big anxieties coming out of this illness was finding a partner who understood that mm-hmm. and who wasn't sort of scared of having hard conversations or awkward mm-hmm. conversations around things. Um, and I remember talking to John about infertility early on mm-hmm. uh, as a result of my treatment. And he said, there are many ways to make a family mm. and it's its own kind of creative act. And you've just been 
understanding and, and open in a way that I wish were the norm, um, wow. but that I feel very grateful for. She's a very real person. Eloquent, <laughs> but she can say <laughs> she's real. So you, it's easy to have real, authentic conversations. Well, I know that she's taught you a lot. Is there anything, what's, what do you think is the most significant thing Suleika has taught you? Wow. So that's, that I think it's something in the realm of friendship, how to stay connected with people through long, long periods of time, through lots yeah. of changes. Um, she has the most friends from years ago. Because that you can tell a person, by the way, by their friendships, mm. how long they've, how long people have been in their lives. Absolutely. So she's taught you that. That aren't family. No. Just, <laughs> yeah, just friends. Yeah, that, that tells you a lot about somebody. Huge, huge lesson for yeah. me. As, as someone who's, I travel and I meet mm -hmm. people all over the world and I'm always somewhere and there's a lot of people in my mm -hmm. life, but connecting with those people and really building that community. You know, we've been building a community of our own too. So it just, that's one of the biggest lessons that I'm still learning yeah. from her. Tell me what John's taught you. I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> and John wants to know too. <laughs> um, you know, I think John is one of the most creatively brilliant people I know, but what I've loved observing and learning from is the way creativity informs every aspect of his life, including our relationship. Mm. And so one example of that is we both travel a lot for work in non-pandemic times. And because of that, have to spend sometimes several weeks apart. And he came up with this idea early on in our relationship, which was to write each other a letter mm -hmm. every day by hand. Instead of doing like your morning, morning pages or writing in a journal, he would write a letter by hand, take a photo of it and text it to me. And I it brought me it. back to those letters <gasps> that I got on the road trip. Wow. And... Mm -hmm. I think that there's sometimes certain things that you can only say in the written word that you don't even maybe know you need to say that come out when you're writing letters. Um, but you're always doing stuff like that. You're always finding creative ways for us to deepen our relationship and to stay connected. By the way, that is the most beautiful and thoughtful and smart. I was thinking, write a letter, but how are you ever going to get it? You take a picture and text it so you can actually read the handwriting. Brilliant. Right? <laughs> Joel and I are stealing that. Thank you. <laughs> I have to tell you, watching your story from the beginning unfold, and I've been I've been reading and watching a lot leading up to this interview, and sitting here in this moment and looking at you two is so beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Love is in the air, baby. Oh. Yes. All right, Suleika, John, thank you guys so much. We appreciate you being on Making Space. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening and going on this journey with me. If you like what you've heard, and I sure hope you do, please give Making Space a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Making Space with Hoda Kotb is produced by Allison Berger and Ursula Summer, along with associate producer Olivia Rouchard and audio engineer Bob Mallory. Original music by John Estes. Bryson Barnes is our technical director. 
Minna Kathoria is our executive producer. Soraya Gage is our general manager. And Madeline Herringer is our head of editorial. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.